Hi, this is Kate Luzio, founder and CEO of Luminary, New York's premier collaboration space for women who are passionate about professional development and expanding their networks. Welcome to Come Sit at Our Table, our Be a Luminary podcast. During our podcast, we'll speak to luminous leaders, exploring how they're inviting others to their table and exemplifying luminary behavior in their personal and professional lives. We welcome you to listen and come sit at our table. Hi, and welcome to Come Sit at Our Table, the Illuminary podcast. I am here with best-selling author, financial expert, and host of So Money podcast, Farnoosh Tarabi. Uh, we've had Farnoosh here at Luminary a few times um, already in 2019, and we're going to have her here in 2020. I've actually had the the fortune to be on the So Money podcast, but we are excited to have you, Farnoosh, on our podcast today. So Thank welcome. you so much, Kate. This is such a treat, and congrats on your podcast. Yeah, thank you. We are, you know, we're, we're trailing So Money, but uh, we we have a, a, a lot of amazing women who are out there, and I know we're going to get into to yours, but you're on how many Oh my gosh, episodes? so it's been my fifth year now. 2020 marks year five for the show. And we, and I, by we, I mean like me and (laughs) all my clones. (laughs) Um, It's, it's almost a thousand episodes. Um, So thousand episodes. That is incredible. It, 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 I can't believe it. Um, It, it feels, I I feel lucky that I found something that I love enough to do that many times, (laughs) you know, like, I think it's a testament to uh, just how fun it is to host a podcast. And certainly it's, there's work involved, but I definitely feel like I've discovered something that I'm truly passionate doing. And I don't know when I'm going to stop. Honestly, I thought maybe a thousand, I'll put, you know, call it a day, but it seems like there's a lot more ahead and hopefully, um, you know, I'll find ways to reinvent it. But the audience has been through a lot with me and I feel like I owe it to them to keep going, you know, to keep it going. No. And so I know we're going to get into this, but ha- have you had repeat guests? Yes. Um, you, I've had on a couple of times. Uh, <laughs> certainly. I think that's sort of uh, to be expected because I have some pretty amazing people on the show who are out there doing incredible work. Their work doesn't stop after they've come on my podcast. They continue to write more books. They continue to start new businesses. They start more movements. And it's always nice to check in with them. I think, uh, again, having so many episodes. I think that allows for repeats, but, uh, yeah, I'm definitely excited to have people back on in 2020 and see how things have evolved. Wow. A thousand podcasts. That's unbelievable. And you were really at the, at the beginning, really, uh, I mean, five years, right. That podcasts are now such a, you know, lots of people look at us, we have a podcast, um, but you were really at the beginning. And to be honest, I felt even in 2015 that I was so behind that there were so many podcasts then. And so if anyone's listening and thinking, oh, it's too late for me to start my own podcast, it's a saturated market. It, it definitely, how we have grown a lot over the years, but it's still a small ish platform relative to things like blogs and videos. So if you are interested in getting your voice out there, I would encourage you to do it. I mean, I definitely, I mean, I have a podcast course now. I want people to start their own shows, especially women. I think it's important for us to get our voices out there. Yeah, yeah for sure. So let's back it up. Um, so we'll, we'll go pre-2015. So give us a little bit 
of your background. Again, you spent a lot of time kind of picking everyone else and talking to them about what they do. But I think for our listeners, it would be great for them to hear a bit about your story. Thanks. This is nice. It's a nice uh, change of pace for me, I have to say. Uh, Well, thank you for the question. It started for me really, I would say, as a kid. I grew up in a household where we talked about money pretty fluidly. Although not to say that I had a perfect financial upbringing. We definitely, my parents struggled. We had good days, bad days. Um, But my parents are immigrants through them and through their hard work and through a lot of their openness about what they were going through and their struggles. I think I developed a real maturity around money and that coupled with the sort of my ambition to always be in service. Like when I thought about what I wanted to be when I grew up, I didn't really know, but I knew that I always wanted to be helping people and being a leader. And I thought, okay, uh, let's combine my passion for that and helping people with their money or at least money. And maybe I could make a career out of this. And it turns out you can, um, you can become a journalist and write about money. And in, there you are in service of people and their you know, financial questions. And I wrote for money magazine. And then from there I went into television and I produced TV spots about personal finance and the economy and how like the stock market, what does that mean for your wallet? And then I went to the digital space and worked at, the street.com and help them launch a channel, which was back during the early YouTube days. So video was still a, a very much like a, what are you doing here with these cat videos time? You know, like it's, it wasn't as sophisticated <laughs> yeah. as we know it today, but I took a leap. I thought time to kind of change pace, learn a new platform, get into video, which also gave me the opportunity to be on camera and really be in control of the story and the narrative. And so I had a great run at the street.com, but I got laid off like a lot of people during the recession. And luckily what was like my parachute was having a book that I'd written a couple of years before that called you're so money. And this was really my, uh, my way of kind of addressing my, my peers who can't, all my friends, all my, you know, young adult friends who were coming to me and with their money questions, thinking I had all the answers because I worked for these, you know, financial media companies as a journalist. Yeah. And I, you know, I definitely had a, a, I was a little bit more advanced because of my job and everything, but I felt like there were still a lot of answers, questions unanswered. So I wrote the book for them and that really allowed me to have a platform, even though I got laid off in the recession to continue working and to continue making a name for myself in this space now as this author expert. And that was uh, 11 years ago. Wait, was that? Yeah, Yeah. like 11 years ago. So I never went back to corporate America after that. I just decided I'm going to try to milk this uh, book for as long as I can. (laughs) And then that turned into more books and more speaking and partnerships and you know, TV came and and then podcasts. And so I feel like my, my biggest responsibility as someone who is works for herself and is in this space is to continuously be thinking of how to evolve. You know, no one's coming to me with ideas. I have to think about how to kind of continue to stay relevant, continue to make what I offer to my community and my audience fresh and exciting because personal finance, let's face it, can be kind of dull and boring. So how do I make it fun and sexy. And I you try. do that. <laughs> I mean, you really do. I, I think the, the, the part is that, 
it's real, right? It's authentic. It's not uh, textbook information. And, and we, we had the opportunity to have Farnoosh host a podcast a few weeks ago with, here with JP Morgan, who's one of our corporate members um, around sort of how do you make you know, investing easy. And I think people can get so worked up and, and, and let's call it bored, right? As a former 20-year mm-hmm. banker, I, I get that about the terms and, and also overwhelmed. And I think one of the things that you do is you break it down very easily, both from your perspective and then even when you have all these different guests on your show around breaking it down for them. So it doesn't seem so scary, but it also can seem, like you said, pretty fun. Thank you. Yeah, I think that given where we are today, as far as the access that we have to information, there's really nothing you can't answer without, you know, just Googling it or going and finding a YouTube video. But so I feel like I don't want to just echo what's already out there. The textbook stuff's already out there. So what I try to bring more to the forefront when we're talking about personal finance, which can be really emotional and hard, is to bring those narratives, those personal stories, the human element to it. Um, And I think that that is what keeps people engaged. And then that's also makes people feel like they're not alone. You know, I think it can feel really isolating. You feel like you're the only one going through this challenge, but no, there's so many people out there that are experiencing it. So I think that's part of my job too, is to bring those stories to the masses. Yeah. And make it more of a conversation. I mean, again, we talked about this in, uh, in the podcast around, making it part of those conversations that you have at brunch mm-hmm. or over at your book club, at your friends, because we know what, what, you know, we can, we read all of this around women don't invest and women are more risk averse and all of that stuff. But if we're not actually having the conversation um, around our habits around money, and then that can also lead to not being able to have those conversations around compensation and negotiation. It's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. So you're really having those and making it more of a, Let's talk about it. Let's not make it the taboo topic that yeah, it is. for sure. And so you, I love um, your whole view on the breadwinner mm-hmm. and not being ashamed of being open about being the breadwinner as the female. So give us your take on that because you wrote a whole yeah, book about Yeah, thank it. you. So the... I wrote a book a few years ago called When She Makes More, and it really arrived for a very personal reason for me. I was getting married, and I was making more than my husband or my then soon-to-be husband. And to be honest, you know, for us, it wasn't really a big deal. Uh, we're pretty progressive. We we knew, like, my, my I've always made more than my husband since the first date, so it's not been this, like, surprise to any one of us as far as the financial dynamics in our relationship. But that said, I couldn't help but notice that the world wasn't really catching up to where we were, that everyone from my mother to prospective employers to Bravo television to like my girlfriends at dinner, like this was not the norm. And this was sometimes uh, if they did know, they kind of were skeptical of it or like it was weird to them. And I just felt like, hey, wait a minute, can we just celebrate this? Because I did everything I was supposed to do. And now I feel like I'm getting, yeah. <laughs> I'm getting, you know, side-eyed over it because I went to college. I went to grad school. I negotiated my salaries. I, you know, became an entrepreneur. What did you think was going to happen? Oh, and I married for love. Right. So what did you think was going to right. happen? 
um, we should be getting a medal of honor and right. <laughs> celebrating. And I just felt like there was this, uh, all of a sudden this like weird taboo now over this financial um, circumstance in my life and coming from me where I felt always comfortable talking about money. Suddenly I felt I could not really talk about this. I didn't have the language. I didn't know how to deal with some of the awkwardness around it, societal awkwardness. I mean, I've had, I had, for example, a very big, um, executive. I was, I was up for a job at a network television network and I got the job, but it was a little bit awkward in the meeting with him because he was the breadwinner, his marriage, and he knew my body of work. He knew that I'd written this book about female breadwinners. And he was like, what does your husband do? You know, he couldn't believe that <laughs> I would find a man who would make less than me, you know, like he didn't make right. me know how much I really made. I don't know where that question came from, but it made me feel really weird. And uh, I thought it was so inappropriate and such a double standard. Like we never ask our we never ask men what their Never. wives do in that way. And so I was getting it on all fronts. And my mother, you know, I'm from the Middle East. and Or I, I should say I was born here, but my parents are Middle Eastern. And culturally, this was not the norm. You know, you marry, even if you're like the president of, you know, your company, you probably should still marry up because that's what people expect. That's what is expected of you because it's perceived to be what's safe. You know, women are right. like, we're not conditioned to be in this role and men are more conditioned to be like the financial providers. So all that to say, I felt like I need to write about this just to get my own thoughts on paper and kind of go through my own, like, <laughs> you know, therapy. Um, yeah. But absolutely. also because I thought if I'm experiencing this, I'm sure there's, there are other women out there. And I started to pour through all the research. There's so much research on this, Kate, but no one was really like, piecing it together and really creating a thesis around it. And the thesis I came up with after reading everything and doing my own studies was that this is a challenge for society that it's not, you know, that of course some couples have no problem with it, but for the large part, it is awkward. And what's really scary is that, like we said earlier, we're not celebrating this quite the opposite. More marriages are ending up in divorce um, because yes. we, again, we don't have the language money's already a taboo topic in relationships. You layer onto this, this very, um, different nuance. It's even more shattering. And so I thought, no, this is not right. I need to be the crazy woman who's going to start talking about this, even if it means people are going to not want to talk to me, but I just think we need to get this out in the world. And that was five years ago. And I continue to do so much speaking around this 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 is not a topic that's going away I, for good reason because more women continue to make more in their marriages um and i want that trend to continue but i also want it not to come back to haunt us do you think and and i i, I, I as you and i discussed i completely agree i mean i was in one of those a similar marriage right and i i think there was always an expectation that because I was a banker and my ex-husband was a banker, he was making more. I think even now as an entrepreneur, a lot of, a lot of people will ask me, oh, who's your, who's your backer? Um, what does mm -hmm, your husband mm -hmm. do? And first of wow. all, I say, well, I don't have a backer. I'm the banker. And second of all, I don't have a husband. So it's my <laughs> personal savings and finances. Thank you. Right? But there's just that automatic assumption that there is a, you know, someone paying your bills. And but do you think so? Yes, more women are making more and we have a long way to go. But which, you know, obviously the, the trend is, is, is headed that way. 
do you think that this subject is being talked about more openly? Do you think you're making headway? And I know you speak so much in so many conferences as well. I like to think I am. You know, I just got back from Google and there is a woman there, Bethany Baines, who's been on my podcast. She is a longtime Google exec who makes more than her husband. And she has started a Google female breadwinners organization internally, which, um, you know, was she was inspired... She reads my books. She knew what I was about. I think I'd like to think that I had a little something to do with that, you know, as far as like yeah. just feeling like, okay, I'm it's I want to find my community. And 1,300 women later at Google who are part of this organization, I think that's definitely progress. And I and I do feel as though um, companies like the the tech companies, the financial institutions, like if you're a woman working yeah. at these places. Um, I would expect that they're doing well, you know, at certain, at certain levels of um, positions, like you're going to have women who are making more than their husbands or just making more um, running their household, single mothers. Yeah. So you, if you care about your employees and their well-being, this is a topic that, that I think if you can be uh, ushering this conversation, I think that says a lot about you as a company and caring for your employees. And uh, yeah, I, I, I like to think that it is a, sparking a little bit of a movement you know when the book came out in 2014 it I was surprised it was I thought oh my gosh this is I mean maybe I was too cocky but I was like oh my god everyone's gonna buy this book and I'll tell you what the <laughs> audio version did much better than the hardcover I think because the cover was explicitly telling everybody what you're reading right when she makes more right rules for breadwinning women there was a uh, a, a female dress made out of a hundred dollar bill on the cover. Like, I don't know. Do you want to read that on the subway? Um, but you might <laughs> listen to it. And so I think right. then it was, it's and even still, I don't know if it's something that we really want to reveal that openly because. Well, again, back yeah, to the taboo yeah. topic, right? So like, we don't want to talk about how much we make. We don't want to talk about, you know, whether or not we invest and yet we don't want to talk about if we're the breadwinner, right? We've got to start getting, comfortable with these topics and having really open conversations, which I love because you do it all the time. And again, whether it's your podcast, whether you're speaking, you've done it here where you're, you're pushing people to have these open, this open dialogue, because not only does it help the individual, it helps the people around them, right? Get more comfortable and start talking about it. And learning. And some of the best feedback I've gotten is from the men who are in these relationships who said to me, you know, I read your book and I had no idea what my wife was going through. Or now I have so much more empathy, sympathy. And I, I, I really am am grateful that um, I have this knowledge now and we can talk more about things in a way that we can use your book as sort of an anchor and as an icebreaker to talk about some of the harder things that we've been avoiding. No, it's really amazing. And I want to get into it because we have a couple minutes. Um, I would love if you would talk about the books, your speaking, a financial expert, you've got the podcast. And then this, this year you actually um, opened a new chapter in a new book um, with Yes. Thank you. Yeah. So She Stacks is myself, Patience Ramsey, and Kendra Meyer. The three of us uh, came together with a mission to make financial literacy simple, sexy, and social for women. And, you know, long term, we want to create an ecosystem of all sorts of products and services 
in service of women and financial independence for them. Um, And we started with this year a concept that is pretty culturally popular. You know, these pop-up museums you see everywhere, museum of ice cream, museum of pizza. People people really are craving experience, leaving the house, um, finding these Instagrammable moments. And so we thought, what if we took that concept and paired it with financial literacy, which is the opposite of all those things I just said. It's not sexy. It's not exciting. It's not Instagrammable. But we, you know, my partners in the business, they come from brand and marketing backgrounds and creative backgrounds. And I come obviously with the financial insights. And so we thought it was a great synergy to then go and do this pop-up, which would be sort of our announcement of like who we are and getting our name out there, but also doing what is um, sort of a, you know, what everybody wants right now, which is the experience. So yeah, it's called Stacks House. We launched it in April in Los Angeles. It ran for five weeks. Thousands of people came. We had brand partners. We had programming. We learned a lot. Not to say that it was a perfect experience, but we definitely are very proud of that. And we hope that we can tour now the country with it. And we're looking at 2020 as a new year, a way to maybe create more of these stacks houses in different cities. We'd love to come to New York. And in the meantime, also popping up in smaller ways, like we're going to be at Luminary um, later in this yeah. month to do financial bingo, which is, uh, again, in the in the spirit of, of She Stacks, which is to make financial literacy simple and social and a little sexy. It's gonna, There's going to be great prizes. It's There's going to be some wine and food. And it's, again, you know, <laughs> people love bingo. It's fun. Um, but we're going to try to sprinkle in some literacy instead of like B12 or N34. We're going to call out financial terms that uh, we can all kind of answer together, sort of Jeopardy style, and call it a night. And hopefully we can do more of this stuff, you know, throughout the year, all again in the spirit of making money more accessible and more fun. And I think people really love the gathering aspect. What was so special about Stacks House was that it inspired community and conversation. And ultimately that's what's going to move the needle. I think not just, you know, textbook answers. Yeah. And I think that community aspect is so big, right? Back, like you said, gathering, Mm -hmm. really feeling connected to someone, feeling like you're not alone in some of this um, and that it's not so scary and overwhelming. And, and, and um, Stacks House wasn't just focused on women. either. No, I mean, it was really open for everybody we, yeah. um, you know, as three women founders, I think our heart was really in this for ultimately helping more women. I think more women need the help. Yeah. If you think about it from the perspective of, uh, you know, the, the wage gap, the confidence gap, the investing gap there, we have a lot of more bigger gaps to fill. Um, but certainly it was open for everybody and in going future iterations, we'd love to make it even like a family situation where you can bring your kids and have something there for everybody, whether you're a single mom or, you know, in a relationship, kids, no kids, man, woman, um, non-binary, yeah. I mean, really like everybody needs this advice. <laughs> it's not to say it's not extraordinary, yeah. but, um, you know, we do slant more feminine. Yeah. It's just like, luminary, yes. right. We're, we're, we're geared towards women because we need that support and that focus and that community and, and, and programming, but we, we welcome all, I think, I think it's really important as we look um, at this younger generation and the financial literacy to your point and teaching kids earlier 
um, one of the things that you ask on your podcast is, um, is sort of what's that first memory of money. And, you know, when I was on, on so money, the first time I, I really had to think about it, but the, the memory was really, was very clear. What is your first memory of money? Of money. Wow. I remember distinctly when I was five, we were at the mall because that's what you did in the eighties in Worcester, Massachusetts. Yeah. You spent your Saturdays <laughs> and Sundays at the mall and we were at the Worcester Galleria and <laughs> I was frustrated because I wanted stuff that I saw and I couldn't have it. My mother was like, well, you don't have money and we're not getting that. And probably she was right. Cause I wanted just some, whatever random doll or whatever thing. And my uncle was visiting in town that weekend and I was uh, with him at the mall upset. And he was like, why are you upset? And this is a conversation that now years later we recall, we think it's so funny. And I was like, well, I'm not allowed to buy anything. And he goes, well, you know, when you get your own money, you can make your own decisions. And I said, well, great. I have to wait like another forever to get my own money. And he's like, (laughs) no, you can actually ask for an allowance. And I was like, what is this? Tell me everything. (laughs) So he educated me on much to my parents' chagrin, what an allowance is. And I thought that was brilliant. And I immediately turned back to my mother and I said, I would like to make an allowance. And I, I was five and I negotiated, like, I think $2 a week um, in exchange wow. for some housework. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I don't remember if the allowance stuck, but I remember that conversation. I remember being told that I had options, that, that like, I could, I could you know, I didn't have to just accept my mother's no, that I could maybe suggest a counter offer, <laughs> which was, right, right. You also learned yeah, negotiation, like, what, what right? if I, you know, did stuff around the house and you would pay me and then I could have a better day at the mall next weekend. Um, and this was actually a, a story that I opened my very first column with, uh, I, for many years was the financial columnist for Oprah magazine. And my very first article was that scene uh, because it was such a, I think, one of my earliest, if not the earliest memory. And so telling, right, of who I would become because yeah. I love to negotiate. <laughs> Plus, also, it shows hard work mm-hmm. equals something, right. right? So value of a dollar and putting in the hard work in order to get that. I think that's what that's what people forget all the time. That you, In order to make money, you've actually got to earn it. Right. Right. And like hustle. my son, who's five, <laughs> and this, you know, my he asked my husband the other day if he could download a movie on his phone or something. And my husband said, no, that's, I'm not going to do that because I don't want to spend the money. And my son goes, no, dad, it's not real money. It's phone money. (laughs) So we have bigger fish to fry now with these kids growing up in this generation. So I, the being digitally native. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, um, I have just two more questions. So my second to last question is the best for anybody that's mm-hmm. listening out there. You're for someone who is, uh, whether they're afraid to talk about it, they're just not sure what's this top tip that you would give to someone as they're starting to think about personal investing, personal investing. So does that mean investing in yourself or investing in the market? Any, I mean, just think about, you know, whether it's, you know, some people don't even have a savings. Mm -hmm. What that term is sometimes in the market is starting an IRA for making sure you're doing a 401k. So, 
you know, I, I, someone on my show actually uh, said, this has really stuck with me. You know, sometimes we need to feel motivated by something that is bigger than ourselves. And I can um, relate to this, that sometimes when I think about all the, the right things I'm supposed to do with my money, or I should save more, I should invest more. And I, for some reason, I'm not getting to it. I'm delaying it. I think that sometimes you have to think bigger picture and, and think of this. This is my advice now to your listeners is that think about what is the financial legacy that you want to leave, right? Because yes, you're living this one life now and maybe you're just taking care of yourself and you don't have dependents or you don't have family. You're not really thinking broadly, like what is going to be my legacy, but I like to think that all of us want to leave this earth with a good, having like had a good experience, leaving, like leaving something to the next generation, whether that is your, you know, your best friend's children or your, the company that you built and the employees that worked for you. Like you want to have a legacy that is inspiring and you don't want to have a legacy that's like, she didn't have any money in her bank account. She didn't have life insurance. She left everybody sort of scrambling right? That it's sometimes like your world is bigger than you. And that's actually really empowering to think about it, you know, that you have this capability to sort of make an impact, not just today in your life, but also when you're gone. And I think that I think like, okay, look to my kids and I think, you know, some days I'm lazy and I don't want to do the right thing, but I'm like, oh, I, it's not about me anymore. It's about them and doing it for them. So who else can you be in service of? Because I think that sometimes can be a hugely motivating factor to kind of do the stuff that we wouldn't otherwise do because sometimes we care about ourselves less than others. You know, I love that. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I mean, I I think that's wonderful. So whoever that guest was, um, amazing. (laughs) Um, And the last question, just since this is the luminary podcast, who is one of your luminaries? Oh my gosh. One of my luminaries. Oh, Yeah. We I ask mean, everyone. Can I just so. say, I love Jane Fonda. I really do. And now she's like all the time getting arrested. And I'm I know. just like, all I want to do in my 80s and 90s is get arrested. I do. I think it's a great way to go out of this world, you know? And she's done so much for women and for, uh, you know, oh, gosh, she's such, a, such an icon. I love everything she says. I love everything she stands for. And Still, still acting, acting, still working. So ahead of her time every year of her life. And I just, you know, I want to be her when I grow up, but I also want to be her like 20 years ago. I mean, I feel like I'm, I'm always yeah. trying to catch up to the greatness that she exemplifies. And I think she, for me, from very, I've never met her. Um, I hope I will never be, you know, some, I have people that yeah. I admire. I'm like, I meet them sometimes and I'm like, oh, so disappointing but I do think that if I ever if I ever meet Jane Fonda it will any, be anything but disappointing so maybe I'll well I think that's I'll a great on my one. podcast this year I don't know yeah yeah I think that's a good that that's there's your goal for 2020 yeah Jane Fonda if you're listening yes and we'll we'll, we'll send that <laughs> anyone we'll send that listening out on the airwaves as well. three degrees away I, I can work with that <laughs> Well, Furnish, thank you. We're excited to have you in a few weeks for Financial Bingo. And thanks for joining us today on our podcast. Thank you. And have a great new year. All right. You too. Thanks. Bye-bye.